We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's look at Mark chapter 1, and we're just going to read the first verse. Here we go. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I really love to go to art museums. Children, have y'all ever been? Children, they're all downstairs. I'm not used to that. (laughs) Hey, kids. Yeah, anyway, they're all downstairs now. Well, adults. Do you like to visit art museums? I heard there's a great one in downtown Roanoke. I've heard the design is not, uh, the design of the art museum in Roanoke, I heard a lot of folks aren't a fan of the design of the, of the museum downtown. I'm looking forward to going and seeing it. But I really do enjoy artwork. Uh, I went to Ireland when I was in college, spent three months in Northern Ireland, and got to travel to Belfast in the country of Ireland, and spent a day at the art museum in Ireland. And there was one picture in particular that I kept coming back to, it was this picture, there was a display, a special display in that summer of Norman, Norman Rockwell's paintings. You know, Norman Rockwell was a famous painter here in the United States. Uh, painted just kind of the pictures of Americana, if you will. Um, most of his pictures are really portraits of people, kind of candid shots of people. And the one that I could not get away from was this picture here. Now, here's my PowerPoint illustration for this morning. So here's what I'm going to have to do. We're going to have to go old school here. So I'm going to do this. I want you to take a look at this picture, and I'm just blowing by you really quickly, but it's a picture of a little girl, probably, I don't know, 10 years old or so. She's looking at herself in a mirror. Uh, That's an amazing feat in and of itself, is to paint a picture of someone looking in the mirror and painting the reflection of themselves looking in a mirror. That's a very difficult thing to do in artwork. I am not a painter by any stretch of the imagination. But here is this picture of this young lady looking at herself in this mirror. And if you look to the, to the left of her portrait here or her reflection in this mirror, she has a discarded doll that's kind of flipped over on its side, a, you know, a child's play toy, a doll. And then if you look in the picture, and I'm sorry, again, I wish we could put it up there on the screen. Maybe someday we will have that. But if you look in the picture, she's looking at a magazine. The magazine lies open in her lap. And then at the foot of, of her stool here is a comb and a brush, some lipstick, maybe some blush, some, some makeup. And you can tell that she has put makeup on her face. And she's looking at a picture of a grown woman in this magazine. Maybe this grown woman is a model or somebody, you know, who's pretty popular, maybe a movie star, and you can tell that she's looking at herself in this mirror. She's discarded this doll, kind of discarded her childhood, if you will, and she's looking at herself in this reflection in the mirror, wondering if she perhaps measures up to this photograph or this picture in this magazine. And I was just captivated by this picture in the uh, museum, I really did come back most of the day and just would come back and think more about that picture because his pictures really paint uh, a neat story. And I think the Gospel of Mark is like this. The Gospel of Mark, as I hope we'll see in probably more than 29 sermons, is going to paint a picture for us and we're going to see something different about Jesus every week that we come back and we look at this portrait, if you will, of the Gospel of Mark. And that's true with the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see who Jesus is. We're going to see different things about Jesus as we come to him each week, week in and went out, what he did, what his his desires were, what his mission, mission was. So Mark paints this portrait of Jesus for us. 
But let me ask you this. When I saw this picture in the museum in Ireland, art museum in Ireland, you know, it really made me think, what did this little girl see in herself as she was looking in this mirror? What was this little girl thinking about about herself when she looked at this image in the magazine of this movie star, this model? When you see a portrait or a picture of someone, often it stirs emotions in you. Or often it can stir thoughts or feelings about something. Maybe it can take you back to a memory you had. Well, Mark wants us to see Jesus. When we look at this portrait of Jesus or portraits of Jesus from His Gospel, Mark wants us to see Jesus because when we see Jesus, we begin to really know who we are. In fact, I will argue that you really cannot know who you are and what your place is and your purpose is as a human being living on this earth until you see Jesus clearly. Now, in this picture with Norman Rockwell, the caption, I guess they had a little write-up about this picture. And somebody, I guess, I don't even know who wrote this little caption about this picture, but they asked a question. This girl asked a question, or the people who gave the little summation of this picture made it sound like the girl asked the question, what's wrong with me? I think that probably, in some ways, gives away that that question maybe is what it looks like written all over her face. What's wrong with me? And I think the the question is, in, in this portrait at least, is that she is trying to be somebody that she's not. Now, another way to put that is trying to be somebody that you're not. How, how often do we do that? Adults, we still do that, don't we? Don't we try to be somebody that we're not? You get in a conversation with a coworker, you get in a conversation with somebody, and there's always this sense of competition between you, and you end up trying to be somebody that you're not. I think that's true for human nature. Her issue, uh, trying to be somebody she's not, was that she had a loss of identity. She had an identity crisis, if you will. And I think, really... All of us, that is one of our biggest problems in life, is that we all have, at some time or another, have an identity crisis. And it almost really goes through like a thread throughout our life, doesn't it? What about middle school? You, you remember middle school? Was that a joyful time in your life? <laughs> I, have, I hear many folks who say, I just loved middle school. I love seventh grade public school cafeteria time. Nobody says that. You know, middle school is a trying time. And what is one of the biggest struggles with middle schoolers? It's what? An identity crisis. Does it ever really get any easier? You know, you hit your 20s and you think you're in stride. You know where you're headed. You know what you're going to do. And then, bam, you get your first job. You think you've graduated with this college degree or you, you've got a high school diploma. You know what you want to do. You're in a trade or you're in a job. And then you have an identity crisis. Maybe this is what I shouldn't do. Or you hit your 40s. You heard of the term midlife crisis. And it kind of goes on and on. You can trace this thread of an identity crisis all throughout life. And I do think that is one of our biggest problems as people. Now, real quick, let me give you a quick Genesis history quiz. You should know this. Who was the first man? Come on, folks. Adam, very good. Who was the first man? Adam, what was Adam's role? And you know what? I I don't know. Maybe you're you're visiting and you're not familiar with a call-response kind of deal as the pastor asks a question. It's supposed to be a rhetorical question, and you're supposed to remain silent. I'm going to break that rule here, so just get over it. So what was Adam's role? What was his role? Take the dominion. In fact, we were talking about this this morning in Sunday school. It's neat and providentially how the Lord does that. His role is to take dominion. What was other, uh, Adam's other role? It's not just to take dominion. What, what else did Adam? What's that? 
Fellowship with God. What else? Lots of things. Keep going. Tend the garden. Name the animals. Lots of things. How about love his wife? That was a role, wasn't it? It's a good one. Yeah, so first man Adam, his role was to have dominion, to love his wife, to name the animals. But here's the deal. What Adam did, did that define who he was, what he did? What do you think? Did what Adam do, what his, his role, what he did, name the animals, uh, love his wife, is that what defined who he was? Not necessarily. What defined Adam was his relationship with God. Really, relationships at the core define who you are. Relationships at the core define who you are. What, what, is your, what is your identity? What is it that defines you? You know, if you were to get a portrait painted uh, of you, what would it look like? You ever wondered that? Yeah, <laughs> I see some of you going, ooh, I'm not sure I'd really want a portrait painted of me, unless it made me look like 30 years younger, or, you know, 100 pounds skinnier, or whatever. Yes, but if you were to have a portrait painted of you, what would that look like? What would you look like? You see, Adam wasn't defined by what he did. As it was, Adam wasn't necessarily defined by what he said or by his wife Eve. Adam was ultimately defined by his relationship with God. And his relationship with God was based on love. His relationship with God pre-fall, before sin entered the world, his relationship with God was defined by love, by trust, by respect, by peace. Tim Keller said this, that God's uh, command to Adam, you can sum it up like this. It would say, obey me, Adam, about the tree. Kind of rhymes. Obey me about the tree. Does that make sense? Obey me about the tree. Right? That was God's one, essentially one rule. That was God's one command that Adam would obey him about the tree. Obey me about the tree. So Adam's identity was in relationship with God based on love, trust, respect. And Adam's identity was God's son. God's beloved. That was Adam's identity, not namer of animals or lover of Eve or tender of the garden. Those were responsibilities that Adam had. But that wasn't his primary identity. Adam's primary identity was God's son, God's beloved. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that word beloved used a ton of times. Beloved. God loved Adam. Adam was God's beloved son. He was God's son, God's beloved. So sin enters the picture, right? We go back and put on our history quiz hat. Sin enters the picture, and what happens to Adam's identity? What happens? What's that? Crisis happens, yes, and a loss of identity happens, doesn't it? Because what, is, what, what do Adam and Eve do immediately after sin enters the picture? Adam and Eve are naked before the Lord. There is no shame, and I know that's a very often quoted verse. You see that written on cars all the time when people get married. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Naked and not ashamed. Happy marriage. You know, and that's kind of what happens. Sorry, but it's true. So Adam and Eve, their identity before the Lord is open. There's intimacy. There's no hiding, right? Sin enters the picture and there's a loss of identity. Immediately they go into hiding. Immediately they go into isolation. Instead of a relationship based on love, trust, honor and respect then the relationship pendulum shifts over to what mistrust fear insecurity shame his identity is lost he hid from god you ever heard this phrase you don't know who you are until you know whose you are you don't know who you are 
until you know whose you are. And that's what we're beginning to see that what the gospel writer Mark is trying to do is trying to set up that, listen, your identity is based on who Jesus is and you knowing who Jesus is. Mark writes the gospel basically to say that God wants to recapture your identity. God really wants you to recapture who you really are. So what were we really created for originally? Adam and Eve were created, they were designed to be in a relationship with the living God. And we're going to see this next week. That's why I just, today I wanted to get through chapter 14, but the more I study, the more I realize that we, in order for us to get a proper start from the gospel of Mark, we can't just burn through these first 14 verses because there is some foundational stuff in these first 13, 14 verses, first thir- 13 verses after ch- verse 1, foundational stuff about the Trinity. And again, we talked about this in Sunday school today. The triune God is something that we uh, hold dear to our hearts and our theology and our understanding of who God is and our understanding of Scriptures, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you go to the Genesis 1, do you remember what it says? It says, does God say, let me make man in my own image? What does it say? If you look in the, even if you were to know how to read Hebrew and you could read the original languages and you read Genesis in its original language Hebrew, you would see that there's a plural pronoun, let us make man in our own image. That's not a mistake. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit coming together in intimacy and in love and the overflow of the love between the Trinity pours forth and creation is formed God speaks it into existence, and then he says, let us make man in our own image. So there's this triune language that we're going to see, and we're going to really jump into this next week. So I'm going to give you a little taste of it today, but I want to give you a taste so that you'll come back next week and hear this. Let us make man in our own image. And we'll see this when Jesus was baptized by John. Do you remember? You see it in John uh, Mark 1. That when he was baptized, you see a picture of God, the Father there, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descending down. You see the Trinity picture from the very get-go of Mark chapter 1. So that's why we can't rush through that today, and we'll get on more of that next week. So Mark purposely points out that when Jesus is baptized, he has the Trinity show up. And Mark shows us this portrait of Jesus so that we can know who Jesus is, and we can know that we are designed and created for relationship because community and relationship is at the heart of the Trinity. When the world was formed and created, the Trinity was at the heart. Relationship was at the heart. So two questions. What does it mean to follow Jesus? That's what we're going to see in this series as we study Mark. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And then let me phrase it this way. What does it mean to follow Jesus? That's a question I think we... We think we can move on from, as you grow more mature in your Christian walk, you can kind of move on. Yeah, that's really more for, the, for the, you know, the youth group question to answer. What does it mean to follow Jesus? No, that's not a question that you can ever depart from. What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? As a matter of fact, that's a question you need to daily ask yourself. What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? Well, there's a key verse in the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark verse, <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 27. And it reads this. In fact, this is the central question of the entire Gospel of Mark. The question is this. Jesus himself asked it in Mark 8, 27. He says, Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Or you can personalize it. Mark would 
Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That is the central question in his entire gospel. And the point behind that question is this, to know Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's a central question that you cannot get past in your life. Well, quickly, who is Mark? Before we uh, jump in next week, and this will kind of prep us to really jump in and dive in from chapter 1, verse 2 to 14 next week. Who is Mark and who is he writing to? That's a key question. Whenever you read Scripture, always ask those questions. Who's writing this passage that I'm reading? Who's writing this book that I'm reading? And who is he writing to? It's called context. It kind of begins to help you understand the book. Well, Mark was John Mark. That's what many called him. John Mark was friends with the disciple Simon Peter. He was close friends with the dis- Simon uh, Peter, the disciple. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, said this. He said that Mark's gospel has the account or story of Christ that Peter himself used to give when he preached. So Mark was a companion of Peter. And whenever Peter would preach, Mark would hear these stories, would hear this account of Jesus over and over and over again. And so you can almost see that as you read the gospel of Mark. You see a lot of Peter written into the gospel of Mark. So Mark was Peter's assistant. You read through this gospel, you see how his gospel takes on the personality of Peter. Mark uses the words immediately or without delay a bunch of times. And that sounds just like Peter, doesn't it? If you know anything about Peter the disciple, you know, he was just an impulsive guy. He always opened his mouth and stuck his foot in his mouth. He was always immediately, without delay, he was just, we got to do this, Jesus. We got to go do this, Jesus. And you see that in, 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 the, in the flavor and in the personality of Mark's gospel. Now, Mark joined Paul. He was also not only good friends with Peter, but Mark was also, John Mark, the writer of this gospel, was good friends with Paul. In fact, Mark joined Paul on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. They were on this missionary journey together, planning churches, preaching the gospel to the nations, and some kind of disagreement happened between Mark, Paul, and Barnabas. We don't really know what that disagreement ultimately was about, but Barnabas Barnabas suggests later on, after they have this falling out with Mark, that Mark should rejoin them on their mission. And guess what? Paul refused. Obviously, the disagreement between Mark and Paul must have been big. There must have been considerable differences over what happened because actually Paul and Barnabas split ways after Barnabas asked Paul to bring Mark back on. Paul disagrees and then Mark and Barnabas split ways. Obviously, the disagreement with whatever happened with Mark was pretty big. And yet... If you read about Mark and who he was, Paul mentions Mark three other times in his letters. And he gives express instruction in these letters to welcome Mark back into the fold. So Paul is trying to protect Mark. You can tell that that obviously they had made up in their relationship, that they were united once again. And Mark even says in Timothy, 2 Timothy, in Paul's last recorded letter, he urged Timothy, listen to what he says. He says, Timothy... Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Now that's a gracious testimony about Mark's value as a Christian and Mark's value as a friend. Could it be said about you and your friendship with others that he is so helpful to me in my ministry? He's so helpful to me in my friendship. I hope that can be said about you. That's such a valuable, gracious testimony from Paul about Mark. So Paul and Mark's relationship is restored. So he was close friends with Peter. He was close friends with Paul, fellow missionary with Paul. Then later on in the New Testament, we find Mark 
alongside Peter as Peter is winding down his ministry. Peter calls Mark his own son in the faith. You see that in 1 Peter. So Peter and his fellow workers laboring for the gospel, uh, as Peter is ending his life, he is in Rome. And early traditions in the Christian church say that Mark, when he wrote his gospel, was actually in Italy or in Rome. And he wrote his gospel to be used for the Roman church to, to use his gospel. And so it's my hope that as you've seen a little bit, as I've given you just a taste, a little taste this morning of this little bit of background about what Mark's gospel is about, about God wanting to restore relationship with him, that God wanting to prove himself to you as believers, of God wanting for you to understand that question, who do you say that he is? And also giving you a little bit about Mark and his background, I hope, it's my hope, that this will begin to bring this gospel story about Jesus to life to you in so many more fresh, fresh ways. You see, Mark was surrounded by people who knew Jesus personally. His family. In fact, it's likely that his parents were close friends with Jesus. Can you imagine that? Yeah, my folks, they were good friends with Jesus. That's just pretty amazing, isn't it? Mark's parents, very likely good friends with Jesus. Mark, surrounded by friends who knew Jesus well, Peter, Paul. Paul, Mark himself was aligned closely with Paul and Peter. That's an amazing thing in and of itself. But you know what grabs my attention even more is that Mark had experienced failure in the service of ministry. You know, it says this in Mark chapter 14. It's interesting, you know, some writers like to write themselves into stories. You know, if you see any of the M. Night Shyamalan movies, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he always has a cameo appearance in his movies. It's almost like a game trying to find out where is the M. Night Shyamalan who wrote these movies like uh, Sixth Sense and uh, The Village, other movies like that. He's always got a little cameo appearance. Well, most conservative scholars believe that Mark has a cameo appearance in his gospel. And you would think that a writer who would put in a cameo appearance would put in somewhere in that story a pretty gleaming picture of himself, right? You know, he'd want to look his best. But Mark, actually, his cameo appearance is a cameo appearance talking about his failure. Get this. Mark chapter 14 says in verse... uh, Well, that's the wrong chapter. 14 verse 51, he says... This is right after Jesus is arrested by the Sanhedrin. Arrested by the Roman soldiers, sorry. And taken to the Sanhedrin. And as Jesus is arrested, look what he says about this cameo, cameo appearance. Mark 14.51 A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Most folks believe that that is Mark writing himself into the story. And that's significant because we see that Mark had experienced failure in the service and in the ministry of Christ. And maybe what, that's what Mark, drew Mark so close to the heart of Peter because Peter had experienced such failure. So now Mark is in Rome. He's writing this uh, letter, this gospel to the Roman Christians, and it's significant because the Roman Christians were severely persecuted by their emperor. Paul and Peter had been martyred. Mark had lost two of his closest friends. The Christian church was going, undergoing severe persecution. And the question is, would this infant church in Rome that was being tossed like a ship on giant waves with an uncontrollable storm, and Mark even hints at that if you look at Mark 4, where he talks about Jesus and the disciples and the storm that arises. 
So this infant church in Rome is being tossed on the waves, uncontrollable storm, and would these early Christians survive? Would these fledgling churches survive the storm? Would they, where would they find the strength to keep going on? And I think those, for Wellspring, are some very significant questions, aren't they? Will we survive? Where are these fledgling churches? Are we going to survive? Where are we going to find the strength to keep going on? And I think these are vital questions for us in our mind because the church over the centuries has been tossed about in storms over and over again. And yet, we're going to see that the Gospel of Mark provides all the answers to these questions. So I'll leave you with this. Just who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? That is the most important question. And really, your answer to that is the most important answer that you will ever know in your lifetime. And that's not just because it's the most important answer because it gives you peace and it gives you hope in the midst of the storms of life. It's the most important answer to all your questions you're going to have in life. Young Life is a ministry that I love. I've been part of Young Life. It's a ministry to high school and now middle schoolers and the high schools all across really the world now. And Young Life really went through a recent rebranding of their brand. And their new catchphrase, which I really like, their new catchphrase for Young Life is this. You were made for this. That's their new catchphrase. You were made for this. What does that mean? Made for what? You were made for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You were made for relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You were made for the one who is the Lord of the storms. You were made for the one who is the Lord of even death itself. You were made for this place. You were made for Him and His love for you. What's so amazing is that not only were you made for Him, but this table that we're about to celebrate this morning was made expressly for you. I'm not talking about the plastic in and of itself, or if it was a wood table, the wood in and of itself, but communion, celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. You were made for this. You were made to be in intimacy and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's what we're going to celebrate together this morning as we observe communion together. So I'm going to ask the elders and some of the deacons if they would now come forward this morning. Um, We are going to celebrate communion together this morning. And as they are beginning to pull the uh, cloth off the table here that covers it, let me just set up uh, communion and give you an understanding of why we as Christians, Christians all across the world as a matter of fact, celebrate communion together. God has given us, given the church, things called means of grace. I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty thick-headed person, and I'm also not only thick-headed, but I'm forgetful. Anybody who's forgetful in here, I think we probably all are. Well, God knew that, and God in His grace and in His mercy, He gave us signs, He gave us visible signs to remind us that even though we forget, He loves us. That even though we forget, He is indeed our Lord and our God, and is with us wherever we go. And so He gives us these visible signs, these means of grace, and ours, what we believe, what we celebrate in our denomination, are communion, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. Those are the two means of grace. And they are visible signs that God 
desires. It, it is his heartbeat to share his love with you. It is his heartbeat to give you grace upon grace upon grace. Matthew Henry, who is a commentator, I love what he said about communion. And I love what he said in particularly about God's love. He said this. He said, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, they're like an ocean. God's love is like a tremendous ocean. And there are shallows, shallow parts in this ocean where a lamb, a little lamb could wade. And his love is so deep. His ocean of love is so deep that there are depths in that ocean where an elephant would drown. <laughs> That's God's love for you. And this table here this morning is not any other church's table. This isn't Wellspring's table. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is the Lord God's table. And if you are invited to partake with us this morning, if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, maybe you are sitting here this morning and just wondering, I'm not sure where I stand. I'm not sure how I would answer this question, who do you say that I am? I, I, Jesus, I believe that you are great. I believe that the Bible was written about you and, I, and I, I've grown up in the church, but I'm not really sure that I know you. Well, if that's you, if you have not trusted Christ alone for your salvation, then let me encourage you to let these elements pass by you. Don't feel shamed about this. Please don't feel shamed. It's okay. Let these elements pass by and then you can use this time to reflect. You can use this time to ask, Lord, I really do want to know you. I really want to be able to answer who you are. Who do you say that I am? That you really are Jesus. You really are my God and my Savior. So if you're not yet sure of where you stand with the Lord, let's let these elements pass by you and you can use this time for prayer and self-examination. And I would love, our elders would love to talk with you after the service. Please come and seek us out. If your child is not yet a communicant member of Wellspring, let me encourage you to let these elements pass you by and you can use this time to explain the gospel of grace clearly to them. Because remember, Christ, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was upon Christ. And by His wounds, we were healed. So come now to this table. And as Matthew Henry says, come and drown in His love together this morning. Wrong dish. There we go. The Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, He took bread, and He broke this bread. And when He had given thanks, He said, this is My body broken for you. This is my body broken for you. It's an amazing thing. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you. Jesus, we praise you for your utter willingness to take our sin, my sin, upon yourself. We thank You, Jesus, that Your body was broken for us. And now we ask, Lord, that You would consecrate this bread, this secular bread, that You would set it apart from a secular to a sacred use that we might always, always, always remember Your sacrifice of love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.